The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. And our hope for this little mini-series is that by going into these concepts, which are really sort of the building blocks of the Christian faith, uh, that maybe at least two things might happen. First, uh, that many of you might have a fresh and renewed love for what God has done uh, for you through Christ. And second, that maybe some of you will come to grasp uh, what the Bible teaches, maybe for the first time, about the work of Jesus and what he accomplished for us. So these subjects of propitiation and expiation and atonement, which we're looking at today, uh, is a topic that's really uh, incredibly broad in scope, but also in application for our lives. It's one of my favorite topics to teach on and one that I tend to nerd out on a bit uh, whenever I'm, I'm uh, reviewing it. Uh, my, my friend Bobby here, he was in class with me with our professor, Dr. Howard Griffith. And so, you know, we had a whole long series on these topics. And so I always get back into that. Uh, whenever we uh, teach on this. But atonement is a concept that's embedded deep in Old Testament uh, theology, and it's at the center of the New Testament teaching on Christ's redemptive work. And in the atonement, we see the extent of our sin and our offense against a just and holy God, but more importantly, we see this immeasurable, eternal love of God for his people. And I think much of the journey of our lives as Christians is to translate our theology into a lived experience. It's so easy for us to confess with our mouths that despite the the extent of my sin, I'm deeply loved. We can say that, and yet no sooner do we confess that, that we tend to fall into one, one of two extremes. On the one hand, we might fall into a season of apathy over our sin, and we forget just how deeply our transgression goes against a holy and just God, and we lose conviction over our great need for Christ to die a death on our behalf. But on the other hand, we also might fall into a season of great fear or shame or guilt or condemnation and we lose sight of God's love and we feel nothing but judgment. The Bible's teaching on the atonement ought to humble and convict us of our sin and yet strengthen us and give us fresh boldness because we know the love of God for us in Christ. And so you have four passages printed uh, in your bulletin this morning that we'll be looking at and we'll read in just a moment. Uh, These four passages all use the word propitiation and tell us that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. But what does that mean? And how does that relate to the bigger idea of atonement? Well, three things that we will see, and I want you to keep in mind as we begin to read these texts, and I hope to flesh these out for you, but maybe you can see them even as we begin to read these texts. So three things that I want to look at this morning, and that is this. First, that uh, in Christ, our sins are covered. Our sins are covered. Second, that God's wrath has been turned away from us. It's been put away from us. And third, that we are at one with God. So our sins are covered, God's wrath has been turned away, and we are at one with God. And so uh, we'll talk about that more, but first let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word. We'll begin in Romans chapter 3, 
and then we'll continue on through the rest of the readings. Please follow along with me as this is God's word. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Finally, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we pray that you would cause your word to bring great conviction and great encouragement in the hearts of those who hear it this morning. And so we pray that you might speak and that you might humble us to listen and to sit under your word and to be moved with fresh repentance but also um, encouragement as we feel your fatherly love and your fatherly and favorable disposition towards us in Christ. So help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. First, our sins are covered. This word propitiation that we saw in all four of our passages this morning can sometimes, in some Bibles, it's also translated uh, atoning sacrifice. In the Greek language, This is one word. It can appear as a noun, a verb, or as an adjective. But its root, its noun form is this word, halasmos. This is a big word. And I mean that not just now we translate it, it's a long word. But it's a big word in meaning. And I bet if we started, you know, this morning and we just started writing on the wall trying to explain what this word meant, we could spend hours and hours and days filling up all of the white space you see on here trying to show what this one word meant means. In the mid-20th century, there was a lot of debate about exactly what this word means, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that history today other than to say that the debate began because of an attempt to minimize the Bible's teaching on the wrath of God. 
And of course, this still happens today as we've seen efforts to change uh, lyrics to songs like In Christ Alone, which we sang this morning. And there has been an attempt to change the line, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. We want to minimize the Bible's teaching on sin. And furthermore, what happened as an unfortunate result of this historical debate was a tendency to minimize the scope of this word and all that it means for us in our understanding of the scriptures. You notice I haven't defined the word yet. That's intentional. As I said, it's a big word filled with meaning and a simple definition doesn't suffice to show you everything that it means. And so instead I wanna show you from the scriptures what this word means and what it means for us today. The best way to do that is to begin in the Old Testament And the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been used by the apostles in the early church, it uses these uh, hilasmos words when it's uh, often when it's translating the Hebrew word for kaporet or kippur, as in Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. So hilasmos really is the word when we're talking about the Old and New Testaments and their teaching on the atonement. In Leviticus 16, which we read this morning in our service, uh, the word is used in verses 13, 14, and 15 to translate the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the slab which covered the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the high priest would only enter once per year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so we read some of that ritual of going into the Holy of Holies and we skipped over, but also in Leviticus 16 is that idea of the scapegoat, right? Of putting the sins of the people on the goat that goes out and removes the sin from the people. And so this word, halasmos, it can refer to the place where atonement is made. It can also refer to the act of atonement as it does in verse 34, When we read that all of this was done to make atonement for the sins of the people, same word. This is also the word used in Psalm 130 verse 4 for forgiveness as we read in our service. And so that verse might literally uh, read with you, there is atonement. And year after year, Century after century, the Jewish people performed this ritual on the Day of Atonement because they knew that they were a sinful people and what they needed was a substitute, a substitute that would be offered in their place to be a covering for their sin. And that is what the word expiation means. Expiation means our sins are covered It is the effect that the atonement has on sins. Our sins are covered, much like um, in the Passover, right? When they put the the, uh, blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the people were passed over. There was a covering for them. But this was a system that was never meant to be practiced forever. It was a placeholder, a placeholder, a pointer to the day when God would once for all cover the sins of his people. And the earliest disciples and the apostles recognized that Jesus, in his sacrificial death on the cross, was this sin covering, this atoning sacrifice. And as we read in Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
This is why Paul could say in Romans chapter 3 that God was able to pass over former sins because Jesus would be put forward as this sacrifice. And what this means for us, at minimum, is we have to come to a place where we can understand that we do not cover ourselves. And so often we get into this pattern of wanting to cover our own sin and and, and you know that you're trying to cover your own sin when you feel so much guilt and shame because you haven't read your Bible this week. And all of a sudden you think that your place before God depends on your effort and not what Christ has done for you. But we don't cover our own sin. Christ has covered our sin. But far more than just covering our sin, the promise is that our sins will actually be removed from us. And the prophets especially pick up on this idea in places like Isaiah 43, 25, where God declares through Isaiah that he will remember our sins no more. And in Micah chapter 7, verse 19, the prophet portrays God as hurling our sins into the depth of the sea. How is this possible? Because Christ, in his sacrifice, became not only the place of atonement, but the once-for-all act of atonement, the atoning sacrifice on our behalf. He is our sin covering, and not only our sin covering, but as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, he purged away sin. In chapter 9, verse 26, he did away with sin. In chapter 10, verse 4, he took away sin. Maybe there's no simpler way to say this than as John the Baptist exclaimed when he saw Jesus coming in John chapter 1 and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But why was all this necessary? Why was there such a complicated ritual year after year for the Jewish people to perform? Why did Jesus become man and willingly take on excruciating suffering to become this once-for-all substitute and atoning sacrifice for us? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we sin against a just God, we are deserving of his wrath. Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 21 that when God's judgment comes, there will be great distress as God's wrath is revealed. Paul warns in Romans chapter 1 that God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. And as I say this, I know there are two groups of people in this room. The first group has already come in this room this morning feeling condemnation and shame on account of their sin. And as you hear me say this, you're thinking to yourself, I know all that, Pastor. You don't think I know that I'm a wretch? I can hardly keep my head up this week. What do you got for me? I know. I know. And we're about to blow up the good news of the gospel in just a moment. And so I ask that you would just hang in there with me for a minute. Because I want to speak to another group of people in this room. And that is those of you who are here this morning who feel relatively apathetic about your sin. Maybe you say to yourself, don't put this on me. Maybe some people feel that they have a sin problem, but certainly some people are genuinely evil, but don't look at me. 
I'm not all that bad. I want to challenge you for a moment. And I want you to think about an acorn. What do you see in an acorn? A small seed. But inside this small seed lies an ocean of wood. What happens when this acorn is planted in the right conditions? Well, it grows up into a tall, beautiful tree, right? And what grows on that tree but a thousand more acorns? And what comes from a thousand more acorns but a thousand more trees? Which means that inside each acorn is not only a tree but a thousand other trees. And so one acorn has the power to cover the world in an ocean of wood. And that is just like the power of sin inside the human heart. You say, my sin is not all that bad. Do not be deceived. Inside each of our hearts is the potential for great wickedness. How does murder happen but with the thought of, I don't want that person here anymore. I hate that person. How does adultery happen but with the thought of, I want that for myself. I just finished reading the story of uh, Rachel Denhollander, who was the first woman to speak publicly against the former USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser in his record of sexual abuse against women and young girls. With Larry Nasser, here you have this man who was greatly respected by so many people. He was so respected that when people tried to confront him, others would shut them down and say, surely not Larry. And yet here was this man who was so comfortable and so skilled with his sin that he had gotten to a point where he could abuse young girls secretly while their parents were in the same room. When he was finally arrested and the police searched his home, they found on his hard drives 37,000 files of illegal pornography. Do you know what he said at his trial? It was a terrible apology. But he did say this. He said his actions started like a small match that turned into a forest fire that was outside of his control. Dear friends, if you do not see that kind of potential for great wickedness inside your heart, then you stand deceived. And there's nothing I can do to prove that to you. You must see it for yourself. And I just hope and I pray that you will discover that about yourself before you cause great harm to yourself or to somebody else. And I hope that when you do, you'll remember what you've heard this morning, that Christ is the atoning sacrifice which covers and removes our sin. But more than that, Christ in his sacrifice is the full display of the love of God in the flesh who became propitiation for our sin, which means that God has turned, his wrath, his wrath has been turned away from us. It is because our sins have been covered and thrown into the sea that we can say God has been propitiated 
which means he has been appeased, or again, his wrath has been turned from us. And this is a really hard concept for us to get our minds around because I think we start to put um, uh, God, we, we view God sort of two-dimensionally. And it's like if he's, if he's not loving, then he's all hatred and wrath. And if he's not all hatred and wrath, then he's all love. And we have this hard time understanding how God can uh, be just in showing wrath toward sin, but also loving toward sinners. It's a hard concept for us. But here's, I think, an illustration of how we can, what we can say God is absolutely not like. I hope you've seen the movie Moana. If not, I'm about to ruin the ending for you. Um, there are many great things about the movie Moana, okay? It's a great movie. Uh, the chicken is hilarious. Uh, Maui's hilarious. Um, the soundtrack is amazing. However, it is not a good movie to teach biblical theology. Do you remember how the movie ends? Right? There's this, you know, there's the island goddess, uh, which I think is supposed to be representative of the Mother Earth idea, but because Maui stole the, the heart of what, the relic from her, uh, she turns into this raging, out of control volcanic fire monster, you know, set to destroy everything, unless she's appeased. And of course, Moana saves the day, she returns the relic, and the fire monster turns back into this loving, beautiful island goddess. So here you have this picture of a God who was loving and kind, but because something happened, the God became consumed with hatred and wrath and vengeance. But then when she was rectified, when she, you know, was appeased, she turned back into the loving and kind God. That is not at all what the Bible teaches about what God is like. When we're talking about propitiation... Remember, we're talking about the effect that the atonement has on God. Our sins are covered or they are expiated and as a result, God's wrath is turned from us. And so when we're talking about propitiation, we're not talking about anything that God, uh, Christ did to make God love us, nor are we saying that Christ turned the Father's hatred into love. The unanimous teaching of the Bible is that God loved us, but our sins simply couldn't go unpunished. That would not be just. And if God was not just, we would have no reason to believe that we could trust ourselves to him. We would have no reason to believe that he would make everything right in the end. But because he is just... And because he loves us, he sent his son in the flesh to be our covering, but not just our covering, our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice. That's 1 John 4.10. He loved us, and so he sent Christ to be the propitiation. That's the teaching of Scripture. God never hated us, nor did he hate the world, nor did he view his creation with malicious intention and ill will. He loved his creation. He loved us from eternity with a love that is uncaused and unconditional. And so in his love, he himself provides the sacrifice that he requires. Not only that, he becomes the sacrifice. And so in the fullest sense of the word, in the fullest sense of fulfillment of the Old Testament idea of atonement, Christ accomplishes the atonement for us. He is the place of sacrifice. He is the covering for us. He takes the Father's wrath as we sung it in Christ alone 
so that it can no longer be poured out on us. And instead, we can receive the Father's love in its fullness. And so a better picture of what the Bible teaches on this, which is again imperfect, right? Anytime we try to describe what God is like in human terms, it's a picture, but it's not perfect. But think about the parent of a young child when that young child has done something wrong. I remember when I was in fourth grade, I had just moved to a new school and I think I was probably trying to prove myself to the other kids or something like that. And I called another kid on the playground a terrible name. Terrible. Well, he told the teacher. And guess what? That teacher told my mom. So guess what? That meant I had to go home and tell my dad. And I was afraid of my dad. Not because I was necessarily afraid of his anger. I was afraid of letting my dad down. And so I was filled with so much shame. I knew what I had done was wrong and it would have been unjust for my parents just to, eh, whatever. And it wouldn't have been fair to that kid who I made feel so terrible for my parents just to say, eh, whatever. But on the other hand, because they loved me, they had to make sure that in that moment, as I came forward and I brought my sin to them, that they knew, that, that they made sure I knew I was loved and that I was safe. This is much like the Father's disposition towards us. Our sin cannot go unpunished, and yet because he loves us, he wants to be our refuge, that safe place to where we turn, even when we know what we have done is wrong. And so how does he do this? by sending Christ to make atonement. And Christ's atoning death has made God propitious towards us, which means he is now favorably disposed towards us in love as a loving father. That's the teaching of Romans 3, of Hebrews 2, of 1 John, all of which stand in fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. But so many of us in various times and seasons, we go through life more like a wounded child flinching at the very thought of what God might do if he only knew who we really were. But he does know. He does know. And just as there is an ocean of sin in our hearts, there is a universe of love in the heart of the Father toward us. And as we so often sing here, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And if we could just but help each other understand that and pierce our hearts with these truths, it would be as John Flavel says, we could see just how secure we are in the Father's love. Why? Because atonement has been made, which quite literally means we are at one with God. We are at one 
with God. Whenever we're talking about these ideas of expiation, propitiation, atonement, this is the end that we have in mind. Reconciliation, being made one with our God. And because our sins are covered and because God's position towards us has been changed, we are now at peace with God. As one theologian said, the atonement obliterates the sins so completely that it is is as if they were never committed. It banishes wrath and causes God's face to shine upon his people in fatherly favor and goodwill. Christ discharged the debt of our sin. He purged our sins, and so they are not merely canceled, they are liquidated. He met in himself and swallowed up the totality of judgment against our sin. And this is a gift, as Paul says in Romans 3, that can only be received by faith. And when we do, we find peace with God. And not just peace, but security, a safe place, a refuge, and yes, even when we sin. Because even when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, an advocate who makes a case, and he does. He points to his sin covering, his atoning sacrifice. His case is not, look at their sins. That's the devil's work. He points to himself, his expiation, his propitiation, and he says, my my covering for them is effectual. I am that covering I took these sins and I made them mine. I put my name on them. I shed my blood for them and I carried them away. And so the little ones, the little children, they have nothing to answer for. As a result, God is on our side because we are at one with God. Jesus is our halasmos our sin covering, our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice. And as a result, we are at one with God. And if you are trusting him today, then little child, lift up your head. Stand firm in Christ's atoning sacrifice for you, his intercession for you, because we walk in love, not in fear. God is on your side. With the Lord, there is steadfast love, and with him, there is plentiful redemption. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as people who perhaps we understand the biblical teaching of atonement and we can say with our mouths that our sins are great and yet we are deeply loved and yet we can't help but fall into one of two extremes, either feeling intense just apathy for sin or perhaps intense shame for our sin. And I pray, Lord, that you would address each of us individually, that you would apply your word to our hearts, that you would apply the atonement to our hearts and our lives. And then as a people, that you might lift our hearts together as we come to your table to be reminded of how deeply we are loved, how secure we are in Christ. So lift our hearts and our heads to you this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.